What is something that's inspiring you today? I mean, is there, are you listening to some music? Are you reading a book? Is there a person in your life? What's inspiring uh, Mike today? Um, you know, actually you say that all of the above. I read um, one to two books a week and hmm. I make an attempt to balance what I call, you know, good books with brain candy. Right. And, yeah. uh, but I tend to fall a little bit more toward the brain candy. Um, I was going to say, I can't read a, a, a long self-help growth type of book in a week, but I can read the brain candy in a week. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly it. And so, yeah. Um, so currently I'm, I'm, I'm finishing a, a James Carr, you know, spy thriller, former Navy oh, SEAL cool. novel there. And then I'm reading right here, um, uh, James Mitchner's Mexico, um, which oh, okay. is just, I don't know if you've ever read James Mitchner's books. but No, uh, I, I've heard the name. What does he write? What types of things? He, he writes, I'll, I'll call them travel books. But okay. if you read, if you read Mexico, or you read Iberia, you 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 will book your next trip there. You know, uh, to Spain. If you're in his, and he writes just phenomenal, um, oh, yeah. just location okay. books, and he really captures the culture of them. So interesting. Uh, I read a little. I read a lot, and you know, I'm also inspired by. You know, my we're here for a reason. I'm not even sure what it is, but we're here in the mountains for a reason. Mm. So we're doing two things. We're building a house and my wife and I are actually preparing to serve missions. And so um, we're getting, it's, you know, so we're pretty focused on getting the stuff done we need to. And it's funny that working so hard to build a house that we can lock up. And close up. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. you're not even going to live in it if you're <laughs> building a house and, and going on a mission. Yeah. How long are you planning on going on a mission for? What's your timeline? Um, uh, depends. Depends what the call is, but yeah. let's assume two yeah. years. Yeah. There you go. Wow. Fair enough. What are you going to do enough. with all your guns? Uh, lock them up. Lock Lock them up. Them up. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a, a question. Kate, that that went a little high on the end. What are you yeah. gonna do with all your guns? I've always, been, so, always do you, been jealous. Do you of need Mike's, me to borrow them? I'm Mike's gun. Well, you know, gun. and I, and you know, shooting is my, you know, my favorite hobby, and it's a perishable mm. skill if you don't yes. shoot often. And so yeah. I, where I just showed you in the camera, I yeah. step mm -hmm. out there and shoot. A couple of magazines every morning. Oh, that's great. A <laughs> couple of magazines there, a day. There's a there's a tree stump out there that hates me, but it, like it a, must <laughs> weigh, it must weigh a thousand pounds. It's just full of lead. Full of lead. You got a better yeah. ammo stock than I do. I yeah. I followed the old adage that they taught me uh, with some of the classes that I took when I did my concealed. Uh, carry where they said, you know, do a what was it, a thousand dry fires before you actually shoot a round of ammo or for every <laughs> round of ammo. Yeah. So practice that way so you got uh, stability. But yeah, well, very cool. And that's, a, that's actually a great practice way. You know, that yeah. I do yeah. shoot a lot of dry fire, but I I also have ammo numbering hundreds of thousands. Wow, um, yeah. you've been stocking so, up. That's great. So, yeah, so, so I so can make do that. Sure, make sure you announce yourself when you come up Mike Matandon's holler. 
<laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And on that note, uh, we want to welcome you to another episode of the Evolve Podcast, a podcast that challenges personal evolution through our choices and overcoming the challenges that life throws at us. This last week, he turned 63 and decided to take a nap, so he won't be joining us today. In Oberlin, <laughs> Ohio, is W. Miles Riley, so we hope you nap well, Miles. And just getting off his shift as a Michael Jackson impersonator in Las Vegas, Nevada, is Casey Mitch Mitchell. Welcome, Casey. You bet. Here we are. Where's your uh, one glove? Well, I had to put it in the wash. Got a little, uh, a little dirty. Got a little dirty. Yeah, too many people high-fiving me. Nice. And wondering why the lady working in her yard by herself is wearing a mask in the mountains of Utah. I am Steve Cutler. <laughs> Today's guest is Mike Montandon. Uh, welcome, Mike. We are excited to have you here. Um, Mike is a broker and co-owner of Providence Commercial uh, LLC. Mike's previous positions in the professional career include Vice President of Business Development and Government Affairs at DC Building Group. Managing Partner at Inside Investment Partners, where he focused on the San Diego County, Phoenix, and Las Vegas markets for a diverse range of asset classes. Mike was also previously a Managing Director for Voight Real Estate Services in Las Vegas office. During his 12-year service from 1997 to 2009 as Mayor of North Las Vegas, Mike was also the Director of Government Affairs at Core Construction and has over 20 years of experience in management, construction, commercial, appraisal, land planning, uh, and many, many more things. So in addition to his professional career, Mike has served on several boards and committees. Uh, most recently, uh, the Board of Directors for Valley Bank of Nevada, the Los Angeles chapters of the NAIOP, at the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, and Nellis Air Force Base support team. Mike also currently serves as president of the board of directors at Freedom Classical Academy. Mike completed the Harvard University program for senior executives at the John F. Kennedy School of Government and holds a bachelor's of science in finance from Arizona State University. Mike enjoys anything outdoors, particularly camping, hunting, and hiking. And he's married to his beautiful Antoinette, and they have five children. Mike, welcome to the Evolve Podcast. Excited to have you today. Hey, it's fantastic to be here, Steve. You know, it's always a little embarrassing when someone reads my bio. I can't tell yeah, if right? it, sounds, it sounds like I'm either 100 years old or I can't hold a job. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. was thinking you're trying to set a land record of how many jobs you can hold. I don't know. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's funny. Well, Back it's in the day, having one job for a lot of years was kind of a badge of honor, but I think that's uh, that's definitely changed yeah. in our day and age. Absolutely. You know, I think I'm the oldest millennial around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Well, Mike, you know, you were, uh, one of the things is Casey and I've been talking and he's been kind of filling me in a little bit on your story. You were a white male Republican mayor of a vastly diverse city of North Las Vegas for 12 years. In fact, one of the things I thought was interesting is that in 2010, the census had the population of North Las Vegas or 38% was Hispanic and Latino and almost 20% was African-American. So it's a widely diverse city. Uh, talk about how you balanced the needs of a diverse constituency while you remained true to your own personal values. So uh, I'm gonna actually back up just a little bit, Steve. Um, yeah, please. Before 2000, you know, so, I, or 2010 is where you gave me those statistics. So I got elected in 1997 mm -hmm. and it was a, a really interesting phenomena in that North Las Vegas had been, for all intents and purposes, a pretty sleepy town, and it was and it had grown from about forty thousand to eighty thousand over the course of forty years, so about a wow. thousand people a year. But it was poised for incredible growth. It was yeah. just really about to take off, and what happened was the the growth issues just surpassed all of kind of the racial divide. Issues. 
that had been going on for a long time. Hmm. And while I was not a politician, I had gotten involved enough to realize that what a high growth city with 45 square miles of vacant land needs is a real estate guy, you know, in running the office. And I kind of started looking for someone to support. And I realized that person was me. <laughs> and, very, yeah. and so, yeah. and I was relatively new to town. I'd been there about four years. And, but also what was interesting is, you know, the growth spurt had just started and everybody always campaigned on their tenure. You know, the first thing they said was mm -hmm. I've lived here my whole life. And I looked up the voting records and realized that 50% of the registered voters in North Las Vegas had been there less than four years. No one, oh, wow. 50% 50, 50 of the registered voters had never voted for a mayor in their life in North Las Vegas. Wow. And so I campaigned on a, I'm new here, just like you. Uh, and I won. And at the time I won, we were, I don't remember the exact numbers, but we were probably 40 to 50% African-American. Mm, and the Hispanic wow. population was 5%, 10%. I mean, it was not very, very high. Okay. And then over the next five to 10 years, the Hispanic population grew so much faster that they actually eclipsed the, eclipsed the African-American population. And... And I, I got to tell you, though, if you want to know how I manage the diverse community, I know this sounds crazy, but I didn't. I did what was mm. the best for everybody, and it worked. Hmm. And, you know, yeah, so I, talk I, about that. I, I, I love there's a few things that you're saying that I wish a lot of politicians would. Well, I wish people, not just politicians, would say, because when you said that you looked around and said, hey, my skills match what the need is with this growth. I think that's great because I think that there's far too many politicians that get into politics. They stay in politics. They get rich off of being in politics and we, and they don't make the right decisions for people. So I love what you said there, but I'm also hearing you when you say that you made the decisions that were best for your constituents by not managing the diversity. So talk more about that. Well, we had, we had a few, issues and i say this you know we we would occasionally have people come in and say hey this particular neighborhood is almost exclusively african-american so we need something that's devoted to that and we would come up with issues you know whether it be a rec center or a fire station you know whatever they needed mm -hmm. but they were we, we never really focused on the issues being due to the color of their skin just what they needed in there and you know i was either really good or really fortunate to be mayor during a very high growth period and so we we averaged about 1200 people a month in growth in my wow. city during during the whole 12 years so we were the fastest growing big city in america and, you know for for 10 of the 12 years which meant revenues were just pouring in just absolutely mm. pouring in. And, you know, you have to make a philosophical decision right at the beginning of how you're going to manage revenue growth. And, you know, I made a very specific decision that we would do capital improvements over personnel. Even though we did grow in personnel, we just plowed money into capital so that, so that when things slowed down, we could, afford to not build if that makes any yeah. sense yeah yeah for so sure. uh, so you look at the community and you know i built three libraries and seven fire stations and a new courthouse and a new city hall and parks galore and so we were able to you know when you, you when you pump 50 million dollars into a park it, that that benefits everybody nobody yeah, nobody right, cares right i mean diversity ceases to exist when it's when it's a wonderful place. If yeah, are, a place you know, for everybody to go to. Yeah, that everybody yeah. can go. And so you the same that. thing is if a neighborhood was complaining that, hey, we're being left out 
because we're a poor community, you know, we were able to go in and build them the fire stations, and, you know, police substations and rec centers and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. I love the uh, plan that you made. Case? Well, I just want to speak to one thing, Mike. Is that one of the park situations? I mean, I was, I was one of, you were my mayor for a while. My first house I bought in Vegas was in North Vegas, and and you know the the park that the golf course on Craig Road that turned into a park. You know what I'm talking about? Was it? Oh yeah. Oh, are you kidding? I know. That's the high point. You. The high point of my career. I know, and and, and at my low point of mine because you didn't award it to my contracting company to build it. So I'm <laughs> frustrated with that. But, no, I'm teasing, but. uh to this day, uh, I mean, it's 2021, and that was early 2000s, and that is a, one of the coolest parks in all of the Las Vegas Valley. Uh, it well, has, let, let me it tell has you an amazing quick, deal there. Mm. A, a quick history on the background there is that um, I worked really, really hard for about five years on a, maybe three years, actually, on a bill called the Southern Nevada Public Lands Management Act. And the concept behind the bill was that the BLM, that, that being the Bureau of Land Management, yeah, really had no business being in the urban land business. Right. That they should be out managing wild horses and mountains right. and yeah. ecological issues. And they should sell the land that they owned inside the city boundaries. Mm-hmm. And once we got that bill passed, one of the key aspects of the bill is that the money that was generated by selling stayed in the, the same community and it had to be spent on parks, trails, and open space. Mm-hmm. And the cities were very tentative at first, you know, they'd say, wow, we've got an extra million dollars here to spend on a park. And I, I said, you don't really grasp how many billions of dollars they're going to sell in land here. And we had an issue come up in North Las Vegas and that we had a golf course that was not a very nice golf course no, if you're not. a golfer, but if you're, but it was a green space. It was a 160 acre, beautiful green space right in the middle of town. And the home building industry was booming and they, the golf course owners started getting offers to buy that course for far more than it was worth as a golf course. And what I saw is a new subdivision and we had subdivisions coming out our ears. We had no need for another subdivision, but losing 160 acre green space in the center of town was irreplaceable. So we managed to lobby and get federal money to buy the golf course and convert it to a park. And, you know, I'm proud to say it's one of the nicest parks you'll ever see in your life. It's 160 acres. And it's got an, it's got an amphitheater and trails and tennis courts and basketball courts and you name it. Yeah. It's got, uh, one of those deals for your skateboard and your scooters where you can break your leg real easy. Oh yeah. (laughs) We we built a phenomenal experience, Casey. Yeah. I had a bad episode there with myself. So, but no, it's amazing park. Amazing park. Yeah, Mike, you're talking about something I think that's important in any leadership role of making decisions that are right for the people. And I, I love what you're talking about with the you put a lot into the capital. People will come and go, and it's not that they're not important in an organization. They, they are. They're the lifeblood of it. But you put a plan together to put capital uh, expenditure for infrastructure and things that would last that would outlast you which I think has got to feel great uh, from a legacy standpoint as you stepped out of that role. Uh, as you look back, how do you, how do you, how would you judge yourself? How would you grade yourself as a politician saying, Hey, we had the right plan. We, we didn't have the right plan. What, what, what's your assessment? You know, it's, it's a hard question to answer because you don't sound, you know, humble. It's hard to, hard to talk about yourself. <laughs> Yeah, you don't have to be humble on this podcast. It's okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you know, I think I think I did did very well, I and mean, I think we had a, a great a great run. And you know, the nice part, I must have done something right because I kept getting reelected. Um, hey, you were so reelected I, how many times? Three, was, four times. Was, 
no, three, three terms is term limit. So I term limited out. Oh, okay. And so I did three, four year terms for a total of 12 years. Mm. And, you know, the only thing I, you know, regret is that. So government finances lag the private sector. So when, Mm. you know, when things start booming, government revenues don't boom for a couple of years. And when things start crashing, government revenues don't crash for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So I left in 2009 and the real estate crash, it really started crashing in seven and eight, but it didn't really affect me, but it meant I handed the next mayor a basket case. Oh yeah. And, and you know what, boy, I'm going to, I'm going to geek out on you for just a minute. Do you mind? Yeah, (laughs) go for it. Go for it. So there's a fascinating thing that happens in government finance, and that is that government, all governments, do not have a balance sheet. They only have an income and expense. So what happens at the beginning of every year, you estimate how much they don't hold any balance sheet. No, they don't. They don't have. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, there are a couple of states that allow something they call a rainy day fund. Yeah, but uh-huh. but other, other than that, governments hold no balance sheet. So there, so here's what happens on a government. Oh, I got you. Okay, I'm thinking like a balance sheet that I would hold in a business of my assets and my liabilities. Okay, so 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 they don't hold any cash afterwards. I got you. There there is there is no balance sheet. There's nothing hmm. where they identify their assets or okay. put or or a place to put cash. Yeah. So here's yeah, what happens. No here's the difference in private industry. If you budget to bring in $10 million and budget to spend $9 million, at the end of the year, you got a million bucks left, right? And the million bucks moves over to your balance sheet. In government, if you budget to spend $10 million and tax revenues grow and you actually bring in 11 million, but you only spend 10, that extra million has to be counted as revenue for the next year. Yeah. So what, and you're, and you're required to budget to spend all your revenue. Mm -hmm. So that means in the next year, I have to budget to spend 11 when I know 10 is only coming in. So Mm. in periods of growth, you're always budgeting to spend more than you have. You have to in government. And it's a real problem. It's not a problem as long as you keep growing, but the moment you stop (laughs) growing, that's when it bites you. You're 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 literally deficit budgeting. Yeah, yeah. And so, I literally had to hand the mayor after me a deficit budget. Mm -hmm. And I I wish there was something I could have done about that. But the the nice part is what I was able to hand the mayor after me was say you can stop spending money. You don't on capital. You don't have to build roads, parks, sewer treatment because that's all built. Yeah. And you can coast for a few years. Yeah, which is great setup. I mean, very few people predicted what happened in that time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the fact that you prepped and set up so that he uh, he didn't have to. Um, she. She. Or she. I'm sorry. Yeah, I actually read that. That uh, she. Yeah. I found her name on uh, when I was reading through your bio uh, that she so didn't have know, to do that. That's great. It was interesting that I was the first Republican mayor in the history of North Las Vegas. Mm. And she was Republican also, came in after me. And then the mayor after her was a Democrat, but he just switched to Republican. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it's in, the, it's in the water there somewhere. Yeah, in Las yeah. Vegas. somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah. Huh. So, Mike, as a, as a former politician, I want to get your perspective on the two-party system right now. I, I think many people in the country feel like it's broken. Uh, it's part of what's causing this extreme divisiveness in the country because you're either on the left and then maybe you're far left and you go on the right and you go far right. Uh, tell me your thoughts about the two-party system. Well, I still believe the two-party system has a future, but it's been... There's going to be some sort of a revolution. And I say that in that 15 years ago, I was back in D.C. and Congressman, you know, I I spent a lot of time back there and lobbied quite a bit. And Congressmen were already complaining that 
that that was the only way to get elected was to be at the edge of your party. If you were right right wing, you had to be far right. If you were left wing, you had to be far right. And the middle was disappearing. And it didn't disappear overnight. It has happened gradually over the Mm -hmm. years, but it gets worse every two years Mm -hmm. and each cycle. And, And it's funny to watch because 15 years ago, it was classic. You could watch it in every race, whether it was, you know, lieutenant governor, governor, congressman, that they would go as far to the edge of their party as they could during the, uh, the primary. And then as soon as they won the primary, swerved back toward the center. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and it was just, it was almost like drama or comedy to watch. But now what's happening is they're not swerving back to the center. Uh, you know, they've, the, the districts have been gerrymandered, um, mm-hmm. you know, the politics have been changed and that we're, we're not representing America. You know, we've got a huge section of the middle that has no representation. You know, I always used to joke, you know, when Ronald Reagan used to say, sometimes my right hand doesn't know what my far right hand is doing. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about I, that. Yeah. 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 You know, I'm, yeah. I'm a far right far right hand kind of guy Mm -hmm. um but 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 not i'm not as far right as the as the ones that are getting elected these days you know i I think i I can just take the majority of the audience of this podcast are probably not well represented by our current viewers because we're too centrist Yeah, and I think it's interesting because we are seeing that divisiveness. And like you talked about, I think it's a very astute observation that we, you would see people uh, campaign on a far right or a far left, and then they would come back to the middle. Um, I I mean, my observation with uh, our president is he campaigned much more in the middle of his particular party. And then as soon as he got elected, went extreme left. Um, and I, I thought that was interesting. There were a lot of promises that I watched and he says, well, this is what we're going to do. And it sounded like it was kind of a middle of the road left uh, promise. And then he jumps in and goes far left. Uh, so, I, you know, I, the only thing I can say to that is I missed the part that you mentioned that was he was campaigning. I missed that completely. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. Good, fair you, point. Fair you point. You and 90 million others. Yeah. 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 yeah fair point. But, it, but there is <laughs> this divisiveness. And I think you're right. I think there is a significant part of the population. I mean, I'll tell you, there was um, four years ago, four and a half years ago, I didn't even vote in the presidential election. I voted for everything else and I could not decide It's the only time in my entire life that I never voted for a president. I looked at Hillary Clinton and I said, hell no. I looked at Donald Trump and I said, you've got to be crazy. And I sat in the voting booth forever and I could not. um, I I just couldn't. I I couldn't choose. And so I, I, I walked out of there with my head held down because I'd done my civic duty of voting for everybody else. And that was the only time that I didn't vote for a president of the United States, because I thought there's no way that either one of these two people represent me. And um, I know that I'm not a minority in that. I think that there are a lot of people out there. In fact, I know there are a lot of people out there that don't feel represented. And that's why I think your story when Casey and I were talking was fascinating because while you may be Republican and you, you were in a, uh, a constituency that was probably Heavily not, Democrat. right? Heavily Democrat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And very diverse, very different from you. You went in and you got elected three times. And so I guess I want to throw it to this question. So Miles, our co-host, he had another obligation today. He couldn't make it, but he, he wanted me to throw this question out there that he had thought of. So if you were to look at the divisiveness of the political system and imagine, Mike, that we installed you as president today, but it's not a that you have to pander to your base. You're you're now an autocratic president. So you you get to choose. How would you make decisions that served America, not Republicans, not Democrats, but how would you make decisions that served America? So man, I'm going to sound really philosophical here 
But if you don't have a set of grounding principles, you're doomed. You wouldn't stand a chance. And I say this in that even in the mayor of my city, um, you know, we were a good sized city, but if you didn't have a set of principles that you were governing to, you, you would get pushed around by very, very skilled lobbyists, like, like no, nobody's business. Then you rise to the state level, it gets stronger. If you were, if you found yourself installed as president, uh, and you didn't have yourself that set of grounding principles, mm-hmm. you'd be just doomed. And I hate, I hate to refer to a, you know, to a drama or a TV show. But if you ever seen Designated Survivor, you know yeah. the writers, yeah. the writers tried to capture that very principle that somebody who had no right to be there got installed as president. You know, mm-hmm. played by Kiefer Sutherland, and he had absolutely no experience but he had an incredible set of you know principles yeah a good moral had, compass a really good moral compass yep it's your only hope it's your only hope of being able to do the right thing for the people and i'm going to go back and share one quick story with you you know yeah. when i was first campaigning in 97 I was the definition of nobody. I'd never held a political office. I'd never been appointed to a planning commission, you know, nothing. And by being that person, I found a lot of true grassroots help. I mean, just people who found that cool in what I was doing and were willing to bust their butt for me. Hmm. And I never once gave them any opportunity to believe anything about me other than who I was. They knew I was a conservative, you know, pretty far to the right side kind of guy. And the moment I got elected, every one of them came to me looking for a handout. Hey man, the city, can you give me grants? Can you give me the, and, and I literally turned and said, what do you think changed? between the me before I got elected and the me after I got elected. <laughs> yeah. No, no. You know, and I lost a lot of friends because they expected handouts yeah. when their friend got elected mayor. And right. it just it just wasn't going to happen. Did most of so, them go to BYU? Yes. <laughs> I didn't say that. And, uh, but, I'll uh, say it. But, but, you know, I... I'm, you know, there's a reason that Steve, you don't know me that well, but there's a reason Casey invited me here because he knows I've got a story for everything. Yeah. I'm rarely going to answer your <laughs> yeah. questions with a direct you a, answer, you got a good but I've got to give you a, a story to explain how these things happen. Yeah, yeah I, I I love it. We're storytellers here, so I, yeah. I'm, I'm with yeah, you. So on that. if I found myself in Kiefer Sutherland's role, you know, as president just installed suddenly mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think I would be any different person than I am right now no so talk about the decision making process um, that you would go through I because you alluded to something that's very very common in politics I would say it's extremely uncommon to not be this way that you it's the uh, you scratch my back. I scratch your back. Help me get elected and then I'll give you stuff. Um, I mean, I I'm I'm extremely opinionated about uh, what we've done in America over, especially over the last year and a half or so with some of these bills that got passed and it was the relief for America and we're giving money to people. And then all of a sudden, when you read through the bill, you're like, Oh, wow. So this politician's husband or that politician's wife's business ended up getting a multi-million dollar grant. uh, And the average American got a maybe $1,200 check, $800 check, depending on what it was. So that is, that's really common. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Talk about the decision-making process that you go through that is different. So I got to tell you, we were really proud of this. So we did what we called a visioning process. And, mm. and so I got elected in 97. 
in the immediate crisis, and you won't think this is true because, you know, this, but we're in 97 and the, the city of North Las Vegas didn't have PCs, personal computers. Literally everybody was on dumb terminals running on, um, you know, mini computers, you know, in IBM 97? in 97. Yes. Wow. Okay. And, and we were facing the massive Y2K crisis. You know, yeah. what are we going to yeah. do when our software can't keep up? <clears throat> and so we spent a full year, all, the entire year of 98, half of 99, upgrading our computer infrastructure so that we would, the city wouldn't crash on Y2K. And, you know, the city had, the city had never spent $5 million on anything. We spent $10 million on computers and software just to escape that. But then come 2000, we had sat down and had a visioning process that we called Vision 2020. And we had to make all five members of the city council answer some specific questions. And we all unanimously, all five of us answer the question, it is our decision to be a pro-growth community. Mm. And we had to put that on the record because then what would happen is people would come in and want to do, whether it be you know, an apartment complex, a, a, a mini mall, a, you know, a subdivision, and people would be there opposing it. There were always people opposing everything. Yeah. we could fall back and say we made a decision to be a pro-growth community with certain standards does this project meet those standards and and support our decision to be a pro-growth community and then it, that made it very easy for us to say yes to projects and you know so you know we had the standard litany of developers and lobbyists that were in every week every week at city council looking for things and if you know if we, if we started a peer like we were being you scratch your back i'll scratch mine we'd say no we're not they are not scratching our back they're scratching the entire community's back yeah because yeah. you know people would say well you really ought to make growth pay for growth so <laughs> no we don't growth pays for everything when you're in a high growth community, growth pays for everything. It makes everything cost less because the growth is paying for it. And so we had made that decision where we had a counterpart, Boulder City, down at the other end, who had made a specific recorded decision to be an anti-growth community, a slow growth community. And so, and they, they buy law are not allowed to have more than 2% growth a year. So if somebody comes mm -hmm. in with a new subdivision, they say, sorry, we're allowed 105 lots this year and we've already met it, you're out. And they were able to support theirs, but then they had to restructure their tax basis to, to find a way to pay for things. But again, you kind of have, to, you cannot take, take decisions as they come. You'll just get, you'll just get steamrollered. Yep. So I'm going to go back to your question. You find these bills like the stimulus bill. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> They're not accidents. They didn't just come oh. along. Oh, there is, not. there is, I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's just reality. There's a master plan. Mm -hmm. There's no question. And it started with, you know, Obamacare. Cause if you control healthcare and you control income, you control everything. Mm -hmm. And so you know, the, the bills may have, you know, pork built in for somebody or, you know, whatever you might find in the bill, but they're all part of a direction that our government has chosen to go. Yeah. And I think that I, if I'm hearing you uh, correctly, and I want to make some parallels because our listeners, you know, they may be running a business or maybe they're thinking of running a business or maybe they're just thinking, hey, how do I apply some of these principles to my life? So if I'm hearing you right, you guys created an identity for yourself. You said, hey, we are a growth city. And then you created a vision of what is that going to look like? If it fits in with the vision, you do it. If it doesn't, you don't. And then you also created a budget of exactly. where your time and your money was going to go. 
And I think it's a it's a beautiful analogy that people can utilize in their personal life, because I think about it like somebody who wants to lose weight. Right. They, uh, most Americans during this pandemic gained 20 to 30 pounds. Um, that, that's the average statistic I think I read recently. And so if I want to change that, then I have to change my identity and I have to create a new vision. And then when I choose something, I choose it to say, because that's what this new identity does. Or if I choose not to do that, if I choose not to sit and eat the whole cake or the whole bag of chips, um, I'm choosing not to do that because I don't do that. That my new identity and my vision just doesn't do that. So I think the process that you're talking about is really sound from a personal level, from a organizational level, um, and it allows you to stay true to the values that you have as well. If you can all get aligned on that on that vision, that's great that you guys did. So once you had that alignment on the vision, and you knew what you guys were going to be, how did you maintain that alignment? How did you maintain the value, or excuse me, the 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 focus on the vision as you continued to go through your term or terms? I guess I should say, uh, as a mayor. Well. It's a great question because it's really easy to lose. You know, like I said, yeah, it's, a perish, sure. it's a perishable thing, especially because, uh, you know, administrations change. You know, I, I, I can't even think how many councilmen served under me during those 12 years. Mm, but I only had one point. that was there that was there for the whole time. You know, the rest, so the rest of them rotated in and out. And so every couple of years, we had to refresh our vision. We, we would literally hire a facilitator, bring them in, spend two days just cramming through these exercises to see if our vision was still the same, to yeah. see if we wanted to change our vision. And, you know, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a quick ana another analogy. You know how we, uh, everybody, we always joke about you, you learn something from your parents, either how you want to be or how you don't want to be. And, yeah, you know, right. you get that from everybody. You know, I, I worked for a guy years ago. I was partners and he, he had this specific focus. If I could just make this much money, I'm going to retire. And he hit that much money and then he raised the bar, said, well, no, mm -hmm. I'm going to retire better. It's going to be this much money. It's, and, and that was decades ago and he's still working. He's still raising the bar there. Mm -hmm. You know, I made a conscious decision with my wife. I started my own business um, right after I turned 50 years old. I'm 57 now, so about six or seven years ago. And I worked my butt off. I have never worked so hard, crammed so many hours in with the goal of becoming debt-free. Hmm. But we had a specific goal that once we became debt-free, while we wouldn't retire, our life changed dramatically. And I had to tell you, it was much harder to stick to that vision than you can imagine in that I could go on working that hard and make more money and keep living a, a you know, a better and better life or change or, or do what I said I was going to do. And, you know, and now we're debt free and we're making a lot less money, but our, hmm. it, it was our plan. Our expenses are so are nothing, you know. So it works out really well. It's hard to yeah, stick, I, it's hard to stick to your vision. Yeah, yeah, very hard. I, but I think that's the key, and it's it's really about um, creating habits because motivation comes and goes. We're gonna, you know, motivation is like a shower. You got to take it uh, every once in a while. Um, but you, but it's not always going to be there. And so having those habits in place, and I love what you talked about when you said that you guys had a facilitator come in to, uh, reintroduce this idea. And I can really relate to what you're talking about with the goals that you and your wife said. I, I think back a few years ago, my wife and I, we were talking about a few things and I just thought, you know what, we don't. We have no direction right now. We had a direction when the kids were younger, but now that they're getting older, we don't really know what's this next stage of life like. And so I, I booked us a hotel uh, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I said, we're, we're going to go up there. We're going to have a great time, but 
at lunches or while we're walking around, we're just going to talk. We're going to pick a few topics and we're going to talk about what's our life's vision right now, because we've got to get realigned on now that the kids are getting a little bit older, who do we want to be as parents? Who do we want to be as a couple? Who do we, who are we now as individuals? And we spent a great weekend, three days of, of, having just casual conversation. And by the time we came home, we had a new vision that we had solidified and codified. And we have stuck to that ever since for, I don't know how many years since then. And, and, and there's you know, a and, chance, there's a chance, Steve, that it'll have to change again at some oh, point. Oh, it for sure will. Yeah, for sure. You know, will. And, and I uh, think about when the, when the kids are all gone, we've got one out of the house, we've still got two more to go and we're going to have to do it again down the road. So it's yep. okay that it changes, right? Well, you know, I go back and and it's funny as I still had all my kids at home. I have five kids, I still had them all at home. Mm-hmm. And I'd always found it fascinating. I, I could never understand how people who'd been married for 25, 30 years would suddenly decide they're incompatible and get divorced. But mm-hmm. I was at my Casey knows him, Sean, my old boss, invited me to a vistage leadership meeting. And the guy mm-hmm. came and talked on just statistics and he showed this huge spike in divorce rates as soon as people become empty nesters yeah, because yeah. they just weren't ready to spend, you know, they, you know, they lost their vision because they're everybody's vision. When you have young families is to raise your kids. But right. once that's, right. once that's gone, if you're not prepared to regroup and reanalyze, uh, you know, it'll cost you. It really will. And, you know, we're one step past that. Once, you know, I just became a grandfather. So my kids kids had kids finally. And and we had to, we we had to regroup twice, you know, once when we became empty nesters and once when we became debt free and Mm. decide where we're going to be in the next five, 10 years. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've read the book, Mike, it sounds like you're a big reader, but uh, Carol Dweck's Mindset. Have you have you read that one? I, no, I have not read that one. I was just going to say. You'll, um, you'll love it. You know, I, I was pretty sure which one you were going to ask me about. It was going to be Malcolm uh, Gladwell, but uh, I have not read oh, Carol Dweck's book yet. Which, which Gladwell? Every, every one of them. Every, Every one of them. Yeah, yes. <laughs> they, they all kind of flow together. Well, oh, Dweck just... did some research and really, I, from my understanding, is the foremost researcher in this area. And what she found through uh, all the research that her that she and her um, partners uh, did over the years is that we essentially take on one of two mindsets in life and we adopt one or two, one of the two at any given point. We either have what we call a fixed mindset or we have a growth mindset. And the fixed mindset is I am this. So I am a parent. I am raising kids. And that fixed mindset traps us. It keeps us in this idea. And so we may live an okay life, but we're still fixed on that fixed point. Now, growth mindset is different. A growth mindset is that I can become anything through hard work, through effort. I can change and I can grow. So um, this idea of the fixed versus growth mindset, I think, is what you're really talking about, that regrouping, resetting the vision of what your life is, what your vision was as as mayor. um, It's all part of having this growth mindset. And I think that the habits of sitting down and reevaluating are crucial. Uh, otherwise marriages, businesses, and cities can fall apart. Well, absolutely. You know, I look back and say, wouldn't it be nice to have some hindsight? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I would have loved to be a plexiglass distributor when COVID hit. Oh my gosh. Right. Think of the money you could have made just uh, plexiglass and face mask. And, uh, you know, I, I have a pure rail. I, yeah, hand sanitizer. Well, yeah, I've got a uh, I've got a good friend who's a very visionary guy, and he had uh, testing laboratories for THC for marijuana in five states. Mm-hmm. And he, overnight, one morning, he just woke up and said, "Conversion time!" And he spent ten million dollars converting all of his laboratories to COVID laboratories. 
Wow. And, uh, and he and he's done really well for himself. But you know, his time's running out, and he's ready yeah. to convert back. Uh, Skip, you got to continue to grow. Yeah, you know, so, but he's he's a quick study. I think that's the word that uh, the way it was looking for is yeah. You know, the yeah. growth people they're quick studies. Yeah, they have to be, right? You know, yeah. Mike, uh, I want to jump back into your uh, years in North Las Vegas real quick before we wrap this up. But one of the, one of the things that fascinates me about the experience you had there with the the dynamics of that city is I think a lot of times, um, and I only, I only have a short thing to compare it to. I was got elected city councilman in Colorado for a term and a half before we moved. But it, it was, for me, it was maybe because I didn't, I, I was too naive to know, but getting elected initially, getting reelected was much harder. And hmm. I uh, wanted to ask you a uh, two-part uh, question with two, two questions then. One, what was, the, your, what did you, was your biggest challenge on re-election and the other question is, I, I know you, we talked about the economic growth and development phases of North Las Vegas, but what was your, what did you appreciate the most about the experience of being a mayor in North Las Vegas on the people side? Yeah. Okay, you said on the people side, so that changed my answer completely. Uh, yeah. But. I'm going to share with you that my experience was completely the opposite of yours. And I say yeah. this, I went. Well, I, absolutely. Cause I, there was my town had 99% white people. So it was all one. Yeah. There's no diversity. Well, it, so. more than that, I'm talking about the reelection. I really did. And I mean, this it drove my staff crazy. But when I got elected, I assumed I was a one term and I told people I was a one term. Yeah, that I that that was it, and my city manager, nicest guy in the world, came into me and he said, "Mayor, stop saying that." He says, "Nobody will take you seriously. You know, you you've got to at least let them know you're here for the long run, whether you are or not." Mm. And this is coming from what they we affectionately refer to as the B team. The B team are the staff who will be there when I get there, and they'll be there when I'm gone. Right. You know? Yeah. And they were, their staff were still there 10 years yeah. later. Yeah. So I took the attitude at the end of my first term that I'm going to run for reelection. And if I don't get reelected, I didn't deserve it. So I'm not going to put a lot of effort. I'm just going to go out there and say, if you like what I've done, reelect me. And, and so the reelections for me were both um, pretty easy. And so I'm, I'm not complaining at all. I, I went through those, those things, but uh, I tell you that you, you said people related. Yeah. This is going to, this is going to get real personal for a minute, but if you're ever going to run for mayor, do it in a city with a large air force base. I got, <laughs> to I got to fly an F-16. Oh, wow. Oh, no way. Wow. There is, uh, there is nothing. How cool is that? Nothing <laughs> quite like that in life. And I can yeah. talk how about many, it. For yeah. How many times hours. did you throw up? And uh, no, we, listen, when you got your hand on the stick, you don't throw up. It's only when, <laughs> only when someone else is playing. They, do, they just put that feedback on you like a horse. You just let it rip. And, uh, you know? and, yeah, uh, yeah. No, I mean, when I say I got to fly it, I got to fly it. I was not wow. riding, flying it. Wow. I flew. I flew upside down through a canyon like Will Smith. I mean, I was flying. The thing. Wow. And there are well, few no, you actually flew it. Will Smith was a, it wasn't real. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thanks um, for the clarification. Yeah. Please. Just so you all out there know that that movie's yeah. not real. Yeah. But, on, but on the other hand, you know, what I got to do, you know, we used to say the running joke is your goal as a mayor was to, make less than 49% of the people mad on any given day. Right, and yeah. o over the course of 12 years, you offend everybody at some point. <laughs> you yeah. And, yeah. you know, the, the goal is just to make more of them 
happy than you offended. And and I just, I'm going to share one quick story that's kind of a tangent from what you said. But I mentioned earlier that I spent a lot of money on capital improvements. Yeah, built a new judicial complex in City Hall, and, and you know the park. That park you're talking about was 120 million dollars when it was done. I know. I know. And all yeah. of those things added together, my bid was only 118. Add- yeah, it didn't add up to. Yeah, thanks, Casey. Um, <laughs> all of those things together didn't add up to the cost of the of the wastewater treatment plant that I built. It was over three hundred million dollars. Wow! And the funny part was, every hundred thousand dollar decision I made attracted somebody who was opposed to it. Yeah. But we made a three hundred plus million dollar decision. And nobody said a word, <laughs> you know, it was, and it was a real learning experience for me is that people don't want to talk about poop. They just want to flush. There's no, there's uh, it's an open great. checkbook on a water treatment plant, baby. Let yeah, it there, there yeah. really was. Yeah. And it's also, it's also probably the biggest profit center of any city. Right. It just, is it, it really? Just yeah. Oh yeah. Because yeah, water treatment. Interesting. Yeah. Because people don't want to talk about how much they pay to make the poop go away. They just want it to go away. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a a fascinating thing, but it was a real learning experience for me. Yeah. And you talk about, and in the end, you're talking about, you know, my pride and joy is that park, Craig Ranch Park. Absolutely. Yeah. But the best thing I ever did for the city was build the wastewater treatment plant by far. It's the only thing that kept them from bankruptcy in the, in the bad years. So we're going to create a plaque that says parks yeah. and poop. <laughs> parks and poop. Parks, parks and, poop. and poop. That was your, yeah. that was your legacy. Parks hey, just and poop. Uh, curiosity, Mike, <laughs> you, you became mayor in 1997. What was the population in 97? 83,000. And you left office. You termed out in 2009. Yes. So the 80, you had 87,000 in 97. I looked at the census 83,000. 83,000. So the 2010 census of North Vegas, 216,961. Yeah. So you had a massive growth. growth, Massive growth. That's incredible. Yeah, it was. And it was was interesting because census statistics, they don't consider you what they call a large city until you're 100,000 people. Right. Mm, And surprisingly... Mm -hmm. There's a shockingly few number of cities in the United States that are 100,000 people. So, uh, Steve, you're up in Salt Lake. Yeah, Sandy, suburb. Right. Yeah, Salt Lake area. Right. Everything's a suburb of Salt Lake. Everything. Salt Lake, what you call Salt Lake City is 22 cities. Mm -hmm. And none of those cities are 100,000. Right. Right. And and so to be a city of over 100,000 is actually pretty rare. And so what that they, they measure census measures percentage growth. So my first year we were under a hundred thousand, but by, by year two, we were over a hundred thousand. So we fell into a new category. And of course the easiest way to have high percentage growth is have a low, the smallest denominator. So we were the highest growth, large city in America for years. Mm. But once you hit over 200,000, it's hard to compete with a city of 100,000. Right. Hmm. Port St. Port St. Lucia, Florida started passing us. <laughs> wow. Never even heard of that. Nope. But you know, they were the same thing. The moment they hit a hundred thousand, they were, you know, in the, in the same class. Huh. But yeah, so we, we grew, but you think about this, a typical convenience store, like a Maverick or a circle K needs a population of 1500 to 2,500 people. And they've come into me and say, should we build? I say, look, we will grow more than the population that you need before you can finish construction. Yeah. <laughs> you don't even, you don't even yeah. have to do any demographic math. If there's no demand for you today, start construction. By the time you finish, there will be. Yep. And that's how fast we yeah. grow. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, that's impressive. So the plaque, Mike, we've just determined at the top, it's going to say great growth. Parks and poop. Parks and poop. <laughs> there you go. We're gonna and put a little gavel. 
Put a yeah, little yeah, I like that. Yeah. I like that. Oh, yeah. oh, that's awesome. Well, and on on that note, uh, folks, it is time for us to wrap up another Evolve podcast. Uh, I want to thank our guest uh, Mike Montandon for joining us, and my my co-hosts Napping Miles and the Man in the Mirror, Casey Mitchell. We've had a great conversation today, and we hope that you, our evolutionary listeners, took something with you that will help you in your personal evolution. Uh, Mike, it sounds like you've got some great things ahead of you as well. If people want to get in contact with you, uh, learn more about what you're all about, what's the, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, Mike Montandon 63 at gmail.com. Perfect. All right. I bet, I bet you guess, ne- never guess what year I was born. <laughs> there you go. 63. <laughs> 63. That's great. I love it. Yeah. Hey, Casey, how do people stay connected with us at Evolve? Please stay connected with us and join us on this uh, great journey. Everyone has an awesome story, just as we've heard several from uh, Mike today. And come share with us as we all learn and grow together and find us at uh, evolve-cast.com and on Instagram at evolve underscore cast. Come, Come join us. Great. And we also want to let you know, we have recently dropped uh, added lines to our clothing line. So uh, you can now pick up the Evolve Your Soul, Evolve Your Mind, Evolve Your Body, and Evolve Your Tribe t-shirts. Those are live on our website. So hop on the website, pick something up that uh, is going to help you to evolve. We want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Evolve Podcast, a podcast that challenges personal evolution through our choices and overcoming the challenges that life throws at us. And now it's time for you to get out there and evolve. And evolve. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Evolve Podcast. Join us next week as we talk to performance strength coach Corey Goodwin. That's next week on the Evolve Podcast.